Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, rock and rollers. It's time to get your groove on with a little bit of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Today we're driving, diving into textiles and finding the sweet spot, spot between high fashion and practical survival wear for astronauts. We're going to lean into the AI revolution with a few stories today and there's one story about early detection of Alzheimer's disease. And we'll check out what's happening at Changi Airport to clear the departure lounge faster than you can say, get me out of here. And here to bring us all the carbon neutral, eco-friendly, futuristic good oil, it's Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Well, I actually wonder sometimes for a brief fleeting moment that I think maybe one week I won't be able to find enough stories to fill our 45 minutes with (laughs) goodness. Oh, wow. That must be nerve wracking. But it doesn't happen. It yeah. never happens. No. It's just there's so much stuff happening out there in the technology world that you rattle off a few things we're talking about today. It's different. It's exciting. It's fascinating. But there's always content. I'm always culling. I start off when I'm doing my research with about 20 stories, probably more than that actually, and then slowly cull down to only the best, only the best nine each week. It's got to be and, tough going. Well, it's not actually. It's, it's well, actually t- tough to choose. It is. That's right. That's yeah. the toughest part. It's not, oh no, I've got nothing this week. It's, uh. oh wow, maybe we should do two, <laughs> two podcasts each week. Do a day. What the heck? But it is quite fascinating to see how many things are changing. So it's quite mm. an exciting world out there. And of course, as you know, and as our listeners know, some of the things we talk about don't come to the point where they are actually in the real world or maybe they don't end up being as practical or mm. can't get in production. So not everything ends up being in the world that we see, but it's still just ideas that are thrown yeah. around and different and concepts. It, it's the potential. And so exactly. an idea of today that yeah falls by the wayside could easily be picked up later on yeah. by someone who's listening to our podcast and <laughs> wants to develop an idea. Exactly right. And we'll just take those royalties. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. We should dive in for our first story. It comes uh, with a bit of a cash grab, folks. All right, folks. Now, are you a believer in extraterrestrial beings? Perhaps you might know someone who's been captured and probed in unspeakable ways by um, aliens with a penchant for uh, people's posteriors. There's no judgment here at Tech Talk, but if you are convinced that there are aliens out there and that they are intelligent enough to build spaceships and they're able to travel the immense distances across and between galaxies in a reasonable time frame to pinpoint our teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny dot of a planet and that they are highly interested in the conditions of people's colons, then you're going to be very keen on installing a brand new ring device on your front door. Matt, there's a million bucks for the first person to get verified UFO footage on their security doorbell. That's a chance surely too good to pass up. I'm detecting just a little bit of cynicism there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, hear about so many stories, and apparently there's a new one about how the American government's released a whole lot of information to verify. <laughs> yeah, whatevs. I'm, I'm sure that's exactly why Ring has done this little promotion on the back of that little next bit of uh, is it a conspiracy theory. I'm not sure. I want to say conspiracy hypothesis. But Ring, exactly as you said, has been getting into the spirit of things, and it's focused around Halloween as well. If you can, this is a, a few ifs here, if you can capture 
a legitimate picture of an alien or extraterrestrial, something from another world. Hang on a second. A verified picture of an unidentified <laughs> flying object. Can we just be flying? Can we be flying? Can we be walking? All right, okay. <laughs> just so something. It can't be someone in a Halloween costume. Uh, well, presumably not, because they're going to give a million dollars away. So they probably don't want to give that away to everyone. But I, I just love this. This is a verified photo of a UFO. A verified photo Anything of an that's alien. unidentified is classified as an un- uh, unidentified, unidentified flying right. object. <laughs> well, no, but no, flying. Let's take it flying. So that, that doesn't mean it's not a legitimate just, thing. But yeah, anyway. Just a UO, just an unidentified yeah, okay. object. <laughs> okay. okay. Unidentified walking, unidentified yeah. stalking, who knows? Yeah, but if it's unidentified, it's only unidentified until you identify it. Correct. And then it's no longer able to... So, it, so for, the million bucks comes back to it. It sounds like Schrodinger's cat, doesn't it? It's got to be identified <laughs> and unidentified at the same time. <laughs> so if you can capture this picture... And it's verified by Ring as being legitimate, not something that you just doctored up. Then, and it's got to be done on a Ring doorbell, of course. So you've got to have a Ring doorbell. Then they'll give you a million dollars. Now they're not expecting that after all these years of people people having blurry footage of something that's unidentified out there saying that this is obviously an alien, that suddenly all these aliens are going to pop up on people's doorsteps and say, oh, ring doorbell, I'll just smile in front of that. So they have got a consolation prize. And whoever does the best effort in mocking up an alien, an extraterrestrial, something along those lines, there's a $500 gift card for them. No. Not, not quite a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a decent, half-decent consolation prize. It is half-decent, but I'm actually interested because ring doorbells, in fact, video doorbells in general, not just ring, are becoming incredibly popular. They are The sales are going very well for them. But, of course, some neighbours around people that have got video doorbells are concerned about the privacy because mm. there I am in my front yard. Well, there you are in your unidentified flying object. <laughs> That's right. I don't want anyone to see me in that. <laughs> I'm minding my own business, I don't know, cleaning the car, scratching my yeah. head or whatever, and someone has video of me from their doorbell across the road, then some people will get a bit offended by that. So some privacy groups are saying that these video doorbells should be banned, video doorbells shouldn't be allowed, all sorts of things. So I'm actually wondering whether or not some of the aliens out there are privacy advocates. They don't want to be captured uh. by video doorbells. That's why we haven't seen them. Nothing to do with the fact that they don't exist, despite your cynicism there. I think it's just <laughs> the fact that they are very private people and don't yeah. want to be captured. <laughs> so get out there, have your fun. The only other minor problem with this, this is only for our US listeners because the doorbell competition is only uh, the US. Of because course. if an alien came to Earth, they would go to the US, obviously. That's right. Why would they go anywhere else? Not only would else? they find this tiny dot in the middle of the universe, well, sorry, not in the middle of the universe, but in the universe, yes. they would also find the, a tiny dot on the planet. <laughs> That's right. And they would just hone in on that all the time. And that would make sense because just like we are, the centre of the universe, yeah. then America is the centre of the earth. So obviously <laughs> <laughs> they would go straight there first and they'd find someone with uh, a ring doorbell. Yeah. <laughs> so go for it, folks. Careful get of the probes up. as well, folks. Careful of those probes. International airport check-ins are stressful at the best of times. Passport and boarding pass checks require queue after queue. And everybody just wants to find their seat and be screaming down the runway at takeoff speed without all the kerfuffle. It may be no surprise to you that there was uh, to be somewhere on Earth where they might be focused on improving the efficiency of processing international travellers more than anywhere else. 
than it would probably be Singapore's Changi Airport. Let me get my tongue around that. Singaporeans are all about clear pathways and no nonsense. They're aiming to streamline all the hubbub and speed up that transition from walking through the front door at departures to finding a window seat in row nine. And once they get it right, hopefully, maybe every other international airport in the world will follow suit. But Matt, how's it going to work? Well, I'm a bit shattered by this because isn't it exciting when you go through an airport and you hand over your passport and they go ka-chunk and they stamp your passport. Mm. And so then you've got that, at least for the life of that passport, to show people all these wonderful places you've been to mm. by going through the passport, which you carry with you all the but time. But they don't always stamp it these days. No, that's frustrating. I say, can't I have a stamp, please? So they, <laughs> they go and then they get a smiley stamp from under the yeah. desk and they put a little smiley on there. And they go, there you go, five-year-old, on you go. <laughs> but you're right, they don't always stamp it. But this is even mm. worse now. This is biometrics to do everything. So you still have a passport because not every country will have this. But in Singapore, well, again, one airport at this stage, and it's not yet 2024, it will start, but they're getting, they're ramping up for it. They've changed the Immigration Act that's gone through Parliament already for this to happen next year. They'll use biometrics for your bag drop, biometrics for your immigration, biometrics for your boarding. So you'll just use, and they say biometrics, I'm not sure whether it's finger or eye Mm. or face. I'm assuming face because that seems to be the most common Mm -hmm. bit of recognition that people are using. But of course, then that means somewhere stored in a database is James Eddy's face. face. That's right. Well, they've got it already at the passport office. Well, they've got that exactly right at the passport office. But people get a bit scared when it seems to be out there in lots of places, across lots of airports, for example. So the idea is to streamline things. 32 million passengers went through Chingy in 2022. So it's a fairly busy airport. And if you can make it a bit quicker, then obviously people will prefer to travel there and it's a much more pleasant place to go through. Mm. I always get a bit annoyed that Australia doesn't seem to do it as much, but many airports around the world do it, where you'll have the locals returning line when you go to Mm. get off the plane and then every visitor line and the every visitor line is a mile long and the locals returning is no one in that line can't you just take some of those staff from that one and move them (laughs) over to this one and get us going through a bit quicker please but the idea of this is to get rid of all of those big lineups and just let people just stroll through i'm assuming it'll be a brief pause at a gate somewhere and you'll smile smile for the camera or maybe not because you can't smile no you don't let even smile are you that's right so it'll be frown (laughs) frown for the camera i tell you i don't do a lot of international travel but we did go overseas um a couple of months ago and um you know, it was a new system for the passport checks and as one where you place your passport on the screen and a little hand comes out and grabs it and drags yeah. it away. And, and I didn't want to let it go. I was wrestling with it and people behind me must have been getting so annoyed. Just make, just just do it already. And it took me about five goes before I could trust it. I was going to let it. Anyway, we got. I got on the plane. That's good. And uh, and you didn't lose your fingers as they got didn't sucked in with, <laughs> with the passport. <laughs> no, but I was, I was so, so we, nervous. we have got a timeline in Australia, but we are waiting for other countries to see how they go Yeah, first. that's right. Let them make the mistakes. Yeah, that's right. Let them have a bit of a go at first. So again, there's some privacy issues around this. Everything we do, there's privacy mm. issues around this. Yeah, for sure. But this one, there's some privacy issues again because you've got all that information stored there. And I think the real issue will be when you start sharing that amongst other countries. So mm. you store your passport information for your Australian passport, you kind of trust your own country. You store yeah. your own information for your Medicare card or your driver's license. That's all within the one country. But when you start saying, well, take your details off your passport and share that with the world because you might travel somewhere in the world, then suddenly you start to get a bit nervous and then there's a data leak anywhere in the world from the equivalent of our 
Department of Home Affairs, I assume, stores all information, then suddenly people get very nervous about their identity being stolen. Anyway, it's all in the cause of ease of travel. Ease of travel. There are a lot of myths that surround lithium-ion batteries. Now that they've become so popular in so many different applications, it seems that the stories about them are also growing exponentially as well. Matt, he, Matt is here to hopefully set the record straight on a number of counts and maybe even give a tip or two for prolonging the life of your lithium battery. Now, I want to just, I'm going to talk about some tips around charging batteries, but I want to say to people, don't get too focused, don't get too anal about it, because I'm going to give you some tips about prolonging the life of your battery. Mm. And if you do these things, they will prolong the life of your battery, but they can also be a bit clumsy, a bit inconvenient to do that. So Mm. I always say to people, do things that are convenient. And if it's also convenient to do this, then go down that path. And it has been confusing because we've changed over the years. And let's go back a little bit. And when I say a little bit, let's go back a lot. The first rechargeable battery was patented, invented in 1859. So we're going back a fair while. That was a battery that Gaston Planté, a French physicist, did I say that with a mm-hmm. French accent? Yeah, that sounded good enough for me. That's right. So that was... South side of the... Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that was the first rechargeable battery. It was lead acid. Now, lead acid batteries, which we still use today yeah. in terms of car batteries, are still lead acid, but lead acid batteries typically work best when you keep them fully charged Ish. So mm. you don't normally flatten the battery in your car when you're starting a car. They're That's typically right. used to start the car, and then it's trickling away there from your alternator. So they work best when they're fully charged most of the time, mm. which doesn't sound like a great thing for a mobile phone battery. But, of course, the first mobile phone batteries that came out were exactly that, lead-acid batteries. Yeah. So that was one of the things that you didn't really want to Hence flatten the shoulder it. holster. Was that, <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's exactly right. You had those big <laughs> things over your shoulder, the big bag phones, and you they came, I know the bag phones we used to sell, came with a couple of those batteries, and they were big, they were sealed lead acid, yeah. but they were big things, and you <laughs> did use them as convenience. But I remember saying to clients at the time, you got two batteries there, so if you can get through half a day with one, don't worry about it till it's dead flat, just swap it over to the other battery. So if you used half of each, mm. that was better than using one fully. Of course, then we got nickel-cadmium batteries. Mm. Now, they were initially invented back in 1899, but they didn't start getting on a mobile phone until about 1980 or 1980s, and they were better. So lead-acid had a energy density of about 30 to 40 watt-hours per kilogram. Nickel-cadmium jumped up to 40 to 60 watt-hours, so that was better. You could flatten them. In fact, they were best used when fully flattened. So unlike yeah. lead-acid, you should, when you're using a nickel-cadmium, go all the way to dead, even if you got halfway through the day and it was half flat, and you think, oh, I could just stick it on the charger. Now, don't. No, no. no let it go all the way to yeah, dead flat. So is there an issue with uh, battery memory there and that they, um, if you didn't take it all the way to just about flat, then uh, you wouldn't get as much of a charge for the next time? That's exactly right. So you had that thing called memory effect. Yeah. And it was a very strange process where if you, let's say you used it consistently, your day used up half your battery. So then you put on the battery uh, on the charger at night and then the next day you did the same and you kept doing that. The time that you did need to go mm. all the way, it would get to half and it would have a memory, in inverted commas, mm. that would go, oh, 
I'm normally charged here. I guess I must be flat. Mm. Now, of course, it doesn't have memory. It doesn't have intelligence. But that was the chemical process that occurred in there. So I've had people ask me uh, questions about the Tesla and saying, oh, does it have a battery memory? Like, you know, do you have to run it all the way down to flat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wouldn't be practical. It wouldn't be. No, I keep driving around the block. What are you doing, darling? Just (laughs) running the battery flat before I can charge it. So nickel metal hydride was similar. They had better energy density, they jumped to about 60 to 120 watt hours per kilogram, and they were less susceptible to the memory effect, but they still had their little bit. And we actually had the stage in our business, we bought this incredibly expensive machine, I can't remember how much it was, but seemed like it was a lot of money, a couple thousand dollars maybe, and it used to recondition batteries. We used to charge people $50 to recondition batteries. So they'd bring in their battery, mainly their nickel cabin, sometimes their nickel metal hydride, and we put it on this thing and it would literally go through some cycles, charge, flatten, charge, flatten, charge, flatten, mm. and then there you go, sir, there's your battery. Oh, look at that, it's wonderful now. It hasn't got the memory effect anymore. So we thought this was all okay. We thought this was all acceptable. We lived with it. And then finally someone came along with lithium-based batteries, so lithium-ion, mm. lithium-polymer, but lithium-ion is probably the most common one. So two great things about lithium-ion. The first thing is, Again, energy density jumps up to 150 to 250 watt-hours per kilogram. So just to remind you, the very first ones were 30 to 40. So big jump there in terms of energy density. But the good part about these was you didn't get the memory effect, but you can't have everything, can you? So rather than getting memory effect, lithium-ion batteries work best if you don't fully charge them and don't fully flatten them. So you'll get more life out of your battery if you keep it between about 20 to 80%. Yeah, right. So that's a bit inconvenient. And that's what I say to people. Don't sit there and wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning while you're charging overnight and go, oh, it's at 80% now. I'll take it off the charger. Oh, good, I can go back to sleep now. If it's convenient to charge it overnight, do so. But if it's convenient to charge it to 80% and keep in mind that some phones now have got options in there to say only charge to 80%. Mm. But I would only do that if you're not a heavy user of your phone because you don't want to do that. So I'll get extra three months out of my battery and then get to five o'clock each afternoon and go, oh, my battery's flat now. If only I could charge it to 100%. And the same with the 20%. If you get to 20%, don't turn it off because I'm at 20% now. If you need to use it past 20%, go for it. But if you want to maximize it, a couple of tips here. One, 20 to 80%. Drain to 20 or, or above, like 30 or 40%, and then charge to 80, that's fine. The other one is temperature. If you can keep it between 0 and 35 degrees Celsius, which you think, that's fine. In a house, in an office, I'm probably not going to be above 35. But yeah. when you go outside, sitting it on the dash of your car, for example, yeah. eh, not a great idea. Probably yeah. going to get above 35. In particular, when you're charging it, you want to keep it below 35 degrees Celsius because it generates its own heat. So having some sort of airflow around it while it's charging is a good idea not sticking in the bottom drawer for it to generate some heat and then get no airflow around it to charge up or to, to actually not you know, charge up or getting hot while it's charging. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I know it sounds like an advertising, but using some of the charges that either the manufacturers make or some reputable charges, that's probably the main reason we see some of these fires pop up every now and again, mm. is that someone's bought a cheap charger they saw at some guy sitting on a corner and, well, it's cheap, what could go wrong? And yeah. of course, they're not putting the proper charge in or... More than likely, they're probably not turning their charging off, not trickle charging at the end. They're probably just going at full rate till it gets to 100%, and then who knows what happens after that. And that's where you start those fires sometimes, very rarely, I must admit. But when they do overheat, and that's probably more to do with the charger than anything else. So if you do that, you'll probably get, I mean, Apple, for example, say you'll get 500 full charge cycles. But there was some research done back in 2019, and that actually had people looking at various 
charge discharge cycles, and they were finding that they were getting 850 out of these batteries in the norm, and by that stage they were getting down to about 80% of its new capacity. So that's not too bad. That's two mm. and a half years or thereabouts if you're charging every day, and you still use it. It's just down to 80% of new. So keep all that in mind. But again, that's where I say you might extend it by a few months, which is okay. But if you've been so focused on that to get a few extra months out of it, you go, oh, was it really worth yeah, it? Yeah, was it worth it? Yeah. 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 In the current online climate of cyber threats lurking around every corner, some people are still not getting the message on how to protect themselves. So, some companies are developing their own phishing and scamming simulations to help educate their employees and provide them with a second chance sort of lesson. Matt, how's all that going down in the office space? I love the idea but I just think it seems a bit cruel it's for just, some people. And it's probably quite annoying for people as well. Well, there were a couple of examples I read. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> One of them was an employee who had been trying to get some Taylor Swift concert tickets and he got an email to say, congratulations, you've got some Taylor Swift concert tickets. He got pretty excited by that until he clicked on the link and they went, ah, oh, you idiot, you've just mm. been fished. And so, for example, that one there, and there are companies, this is what they do. They go and do it for a company to do some of this sort of testing, this simulation testing. They sent out that Taylor Swift phishing test 17,600 times, and they got 533 people with it. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that. You can imagine yeah. there'd be a lot of people who'd be buying tickets for a Taylor Swift concert and saying, finally, yes. So, yeah. But again, that's what the scammers do. But it just seemed like a mean way to do it. And, and sending out 17,000 emails actually doesn't sound like that much. And Not, you've caught 500. Yeah, so the yeah. percentage rate is quite high. The other one that I thought was a bit mean was some emails going out from the employer to the employee saying, here is your end-of-year bonus amount. Oh, cool, I want to have a look mm. at that. Click on that. Ha-ha, <laughs> got you. Mm. Well, okay, I've been scammed, that's bad, <laughs> but am I still getting an end-of-year bonus yeah. or is that just a scam <laughs> as well? And the problem is you need to make it attractive to get people to click on yeah. it. If you just said, here's a boring email that we're going to test if you're going to click on it or not, well, you're not going to click on it. But for end of your bonus, happy days, let's go and click on that one. So I like what they're doing. I like the fact that they're making people think about it. I like the fact that they're just making people go, just have a bit of a look, think about this process and see whether or not you should be doing it. But when you're sucking people in... So when they trick people into not clicking onto the link for their Christmas bonus... And then when they actually do offer a Christmas bonus with a link attached, and anyway, it's you know, available to everyone, but then <laughs> the, no one clicks on it, they don't get the Christmas bonus. Well, that's it. Obviously, no Christmas bonus for you. you didn't you see the link, James? You should have clicked yeah. on the link to get your bonus. Ah. <laughs> so it does make it tough. But the training has shown so far that if you have this training go through your company, you are 33% less likely to be sucked in by a phishing scam. So that's a good thing. Yeah, but but whether same. or not there'd be a nicer way to do it, maybe just hammer the training into them. Tell some stories about other people where things happen. But sometimes people think that don't have happened to me. So yeah. maybe they do need this sort of training. So it does seem a bit mean, but, oh dear, this is the world we're living in now that you've really got to try and work out ways to do it. Americans lost $10.3 billion yeah. to this type of scam in 2022. Industry. So it's happening and people are obviously making money out of it. So just... Be alert, folks. Be alert. (laughs) 
Fans of retro science fiction know that in the future, everybody who travels through space will be wearing the same uniform-style costumes, maybe in different colours, but they get the same get-up, essentially. That may turn some people off, but the good news is, at least for astronauts of the 2025 moon mission, their uniforms will have been designed by Prada. Matt, those spacemen and women will be the hottest things on the lunar catwalk. And it does seem like... Do they really need Prada? Prada. Is this the reason you're going to be an astronaut? I wasn't going to be one, but then when I saw the cool outfits, that was enough to get me over the line. But it does actually make sense because even though we might think that Prada just makes good-looking clothing, or maybe people, some people don't think they make good-looking clothing, but let's assume that the majority of the, the world thinks they make good-looking clothing, they've actually generated a huge amount of expertise in materials, the actual mm. materials they use, and in the manufacturing of those materials. So there's a private company called Axiom Space, and they've been contracted to make some of the astronaut clothing, some of the astronaut outfits. I probably should say more than clothing. They're a bit more They're than just clothing. Like the Star Trek <laughs> well, they, they could. Why not? <laughs> if, if it was Elon Musk designing them, he would make them look like Star Trek, yeah, wouldn't he? Right. With a communicator <laughs> on them that they touch and something happens. But So I think the idea here is that take advantage of all that expertise in materials and the expertise in manufacturing. And to give you an idea, there's Prada materials, I was going to say outfits there, Prada materials that's used in the America's Cup sailing competition. Because again, they've got this great expertise in the actual material. So those sails, they never look so good. That's what's going to bring people (laughs) to America's Cup racing, is when they look at those sails and go, gee, that sail there, that looks pretty... I like the cut of that jib. That's right, exactly. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So so they're using it. Now, these spacesuits, of course, are fairly high-tech. 55 kilograms is the mass of each of these spacesuits. And they're like their own little atmosphere inside. It's got to be the right pressure, the Mm. right temperature. It's got to give you oxygen to breathe, it's got to take care of your CO2 that comes out. So it's basically your own little environment there. You can't afford to get it wrong. You can't say one small step for <laughs> can't breathe anymore. So <laughs> you've got to be able to get out of that spacecraft and walk yeah. around on the moon and be able to breathe. So you'll Your see cool these stuff. you'll see these outfits on the moon. That's where we've got to go to see them. Maybe some pictures as well. In 2025. They'll be orbiting the moon next year, but on the moon in 2025 is when we'll see them. And we've got, actually, on that moon mission, there'll be the first woman on the moon, Christina Koch, and the first black astronaut in Victor Glover. So a couple of milestones there, and also the first Prada on the moon as well. (laughs) I just think it's so cool that we're going back. But if we're going to be going back in style, that's even better. Mm, That's right. Maybe they are retro outfits. Who knows? Book readings have really taken off in recent years. So many of us struggle to find time to just sit down and immerse ourselves in the pages of a good novel. So filling in the airspace with a good audiobook during the day-to-day hubbub makes sense. Kills two mockingbirds with one stone, you might say. Now, I'm a bit of a fan of Stephen Fry's voice. Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen both know how to present a good audiobook too. But how would you feel about an AI voice delivering your great expectations? AI classic novels are coming online now, like it or not. Matt, is there nothing left for a great voice actor of our time? Well, if you didn't know it was an AI voice, would you be okay with that? Well, I guess you wouldn't know, so you wouldn't know whether you're okay with it or not. I wonder if you just... 
I don't know. We haven't heard an AI voice, so... Well, we did. When we did our 100th recording, we actually put an AI voice on. We did too, didn't we? And we thought it sounded pretty close to you and I with an American twang to it. Mm. But if we were Americans, maybe that'd be okay. So that's really the whole concept of this. There's a PhD student, Mark Hamilton, who's working on this in terms of getting the AI voice to be human-like. And the real challenge is all the little nuances, all the little tones and pauses, not just... There are words on a page, I will read them out in a somewhat monotone voice. It gets a bit boring if you're reading or listening to a book like that. But there's no doubt about it. Ebooks, audio books, hugely popular. And it makes sense. People are used to listening to podcasts now. Obviously, people are listening to this. Yeah. People listen to the radio. It's just so convenient when you're riding a bike, running, driving the car, all these things you can't do and read at the same time. Audio books make sense. So building up that repository, though, is difficult because you need to find good voice actors who are going to read the entire book in a style that you like. Yeah. But bringing in AI, you can have whichever style you like. You can have a whole bunch of different styles. And, of course, it can produce it not in real time. If you've got a book that's going to be a 20-hour book to listen to, some voice actor is going to need to spend 20 hours and then someone's going to need to edit it. But the great thing about this AI is they can produce it quickly. They don't need to spend 20 hours in production. They can spend minimal time in production, and there's your next book. An AI can do all the voices of all the characters differently. Why not? Like it wouldn't sound like one person just making up different voices. that's right. Or getting (laughs) in a few different people to do some of the different voices in there. Exactly. (laughs) So just sounds brilliant. But again, I'm with you. I haven't actually heard any of these audio books yet. Again, the little clumsy thing we did for our 100th was interesting, but getting this to the point where the text-to-speech is accurate enough, Mm. is high enough quality that people will say, yes, I'm happy to listen to that, rather than, oh my gosh, that's terrible, or this is boring, that's the real challenge. But they think, and this is at MIT, Mark Hamilton's at MIT, he believes they've got the ability to do that. It's all about Project Gutenberg, so go and look up Project Gutenberg. Yeah, I can imagine that it'll probably come to a stage where you don't even get a choice, it's just a case of... um this is how that's done now, you know. Well, Every, everything's on AI. Well, the thing is, it might be, oh, there's my wonderful Pride and Prejudice. I want to hear that. Well, you've just got a choice of you can hear it with an AI voice or not hear it. Mm. So it might not be, here's a real voice actor, here's an AI yeah. voice. It'll just be some ones. I probably picked a bad example there, Pride and Prejudice, because they've probably already done that. But yeah. other less known novels. It will just be, if you want to hear it, it's been done by AI because we just didn't have 60,000 voice actors to go and do those 60,000 books. We had one AI tool. So it's it's getting there. It's scary. But it could be used for good, maybe-ish. <laughs> Drug testing at work has become a bit of a thing in some places around the world. And it's had varying degrees of success. In some workplaces, intoxication is not just only frowned upon, it's potentially dangerous. So for those of you who tread the fine line and take their chances, there are serious consequences if things go wrong. So the need to have easy but accurate drug tests at some workplaces is a necessity. Matt, how is AI going to help this situation? Well, some people are a bit offended when you say, can you please go and urinate in this cup or give me a saliva sample? I don't want to do that. Maybe it's part of your workplace agreement. But alcohol's one thing, but picking up things like cannabis use, mm. a whole different ball game. So again, it feels like an AI episode, this episode, but you come in with some AI and with some of the testing they've been doing so far, they've been able to pick up 
people that are under the influence of cannabis just by the way they use their phone, for example. Really? So they've, they've put some software on some phones. They've done some testing with some volunteers. Now, you can imagine <laughs> trying to find some volunteers. That'd be pretty easy. Right, we need a month of people smoking some marijuana and <laughs> testing what they do with their phone. Okay, pick me, pick me. I'm sure they didn't have too much trouble finding some examples. So what they did was they tracked... So they keep getting it. onto fast food outlet apps and <laughs> that's, ordering that's right. lots and lots of fast food. <laughs> Maybe that was the way they picked it up. When you're ordering fast food all the time, there's an indicator. All the time, like one after the other. Okay. So what they did was they put some software or an app on their phone, and then all they had to do was self-report, yes, I've just had a smoke of some marijuana, and keep using your phone as they normally would. Mm. And they were just picking up some subtle differences, very subtle, something that you and I wouldn't be able to pick up watching someone. But again, AI can pick up with the extremely accurate accelerometers, for example, on the phone. Yeah, right. Exactly how you're using the phone. So just with that, then after the month long of learning about this information, they then said, we'll now predict when you actually have been smoking marijuana. And the tool, after only a month of training, again, I'm not talking about month of training for one person, I'm talking about just learning this whole model, it was getting it 85% correct in terms of when someone was under the influence of cannabis. So it could be you agree to work for us, a mining company, for example. We have to have this app on your phone for you to be able to come to work. Okay, that's what you got to do. That's fair enough. And you come in and they say, sorry, you've got to go home. You've been smoking marijuana. No, I haven't been. Well, our app tells us that you have been. And they're going to be saying that with 85% accuracy. Now that's already, that's with their first analysis. So that's just going to get better and better, more accurate. So that's one part of it. But even other things, they looked at just things like heart rate, the way your blood pressure was. So other indicators, when you add some of those in as well, it becomes even more accurate. But every other test they've done so far, apart from actually taking some bodily fluids, if it's just based on your heart rate or your sweat or any of those other external indicators, they haven't been anywhere near as accurate as just the way your phone moves around. Mm. Again, early testing at this stage, but I can see that somewhere at some stage there'll be someone that'll have this app available to see whether or not you can put on there. Who wants to put on their kids' phones? That sounds like a great idea to me as well. Forget about <laughs> the mining site. Put on yeah, your, yeah, yeah. your kids' phones. Oh, <laughs> We say it time and time again on this podcast, the best defence against so many diseases in the modern day is in early detection. This is particularly so in the case of pretty much every cancer there is. Alzheimer's disease, on the other hand, is still shrouded in mystery. We have still very much to learn on this front, so early detection is crucial for us to be able to unlock some of the puzzle. Matt, AI has the potential to do some really good here as well, I understand. As I said, it does seem like a bit of an AI show at the moment, Mm. but... You've got this really interesting thing where you've got optometrists who have been taking photos of people's eyes for a long period of time. You go and have your eyes tested. They say, come in here, let's take a photo of your eye. We'll track your eye for a range of diseases that we know we can pick up from photos of your eye and changes in that. So that's fine. Then they've gone and applied some AI retrospect technology to say, let's look at people's eyes over the years and see how far back we think we can pick up something that's different in people that have now got Alzheimer's disease. Goodness me, wow. And so they've done that, and they think they can pick up, get ready for it, pick up Alzheimer's 20 years before you actually see some physical signs of it. 
20 years ago. Wow. So that's quite right. incredible. Now, nothing else out there at the moment gives you a clear indicator with any level of accuracy 20 years in advance. And one of the things that's good about it is, I'm not sure if you want to know that if there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I suppose one of the things is if you know about it today, then in 20 years' time, this is going to be an onset, mm. then you can start working out things that you could do today maybe mm. to try and ward off. If you could make it well, happen in 25 years' stage, time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... And maybe you're right, maybe you don't want to know about it, maybe be blissfully unaware that in 20 years' time this is going to happen, or be aware that it's going to happen and say, let's get some research going, what can we do, how can we follow this person and see if there's some way we can maybe reduce it, minimise it, keep it better, mm. or make sure you do that stuff you wanted to do. If you wanted to travel to Italy, then go to Italy, rather than wait 20 years' time for you to retire, and then go, I'm not yeah. well enough to travel now. So this is the thing. There's about 7 million Americans that are affected by Alzheimer's. So if you take that across the world, a lot of people across the world are affected by it. But what I like about this is it's not as if they're going to introduce some new medical test to say, we'll start from today and we'll test it over the next 20 years so that we'll then eventually work out ways we might be able to combat this. They've got all this data. They've got information I know my optometrist has got photos of my eyes from 5, 10, 15 years ago. Apply it to that and see if in five years' time I'm about to be you know, hit with Alzheimer's, so take some action now. So again, it just feels like a really clever bit of AI applied to stuff that so we already clever. had. Yeah, that's right. And this is the thing that I love. We talk about it so often. Who thought about this? Who thought, let's take old pictures of someone's eye and see if that points to uh, Alzheimer's? Why do they pick Alzheimer's well, so for that? Windows, uh, eyes are the windows to the soul. But, um, yeah, I, I'm just thinking that what other things can you detect out of your eyes? All those That's right. images that have been taken of your eyes for so long. I wonder what else it might be able to reveal. And they've been high-quality images for some period of time. If you, yeah. if you think about that camera that takes a photo of your eye when you go to the optometrist, it's not like they've just taken an old Insta photo <laughs> and, and, and clicked Hoping that. for the best. Yeah, right. that's yeah, right. Yeah. They've, they've taken very high-quality camera equipment worth a lot of money to take high-quality images of the eye mm. to then use that just to track those changes. So, yes, they know about certain things they're picking up, but obviously other things as well. What else is out there they might find out? Can they see if I win lotto next year from pictures of my eye? Who knows? It could be <laughs> anything out there. <laughs> the global demand for copper is currently enormous and it's growing. You cannot have an EV revolution without copper, but then EVs aren't the only drain on the copper supply as well, folks. We have a genuine crisis on our hands. With current technology being what it is, we need to become even more resourceful in finding solutions. And that's why BHP is drawing on AI for some answers, Matt. So the current EV tally stands at about 16 million vehicles. The forecast is it will have 400 million EVs by the year 2030. That might be an ambitious target, but it sounds like a reasonable number mm. that we'll get to. So 400 million EVs by 2030, that means, according to BHP, that we'll need to be mining annually about 26 million tonnes of copper by the year 2030. To give you an idea, BHP's biggest mine, and they're not the only miner, of course, but BHP's biggest copper mine is in Chile, and it yields about a million tonnes of copper. So take that mine, BHP's biggest, the world's biggest copper mine, multiply that by 26, and you've got about the amount of copper you need. Now, yes. there are other copper mines around the world, of course, besides that one. They're not, making, uh, they're not clearing the, that amount of copper. No individual mine is doing yeah, that. So wow. 
there's a lot of extra copper needed is the bottom line from what BHP are talking about. Now, the other thing that's interesting here is that BHP has lots of data that goes back 130 years. So geological data where they've done core sampling, they've done analysis of various locations over those years, and they've determined, for whatever reason, that either they've gotten to the end of the mining life for that particular mine, or they didn't go and mine that in the first place because it wasn't viable to mine that because of the cost of copper at the time, or maybe how hard it was to get the copper out of the ground. But now, with all of this data, with these 130 years of geological data, feed that to an AI tool and say, it's now more important that we get copper and more to the point, it's probably going to be worth more. So some of those vine, mines that weren't viable or some of those mines that got to the end of their life, we'll go and apply today's metrics to all of those mines looking backward and tell me what mines we should go and attack again. So rather than try and find new deposits of copper, use some of the existing deposits of copper they already know about, but using modern metrics. Yeah, right. So do all that and then come up with an answer of which of those mines we should go and attack. Now, the problem is, I don't see any of those mines necessarily being a million tonnes a year mine like the one in Chile. So we're still probably going to find some new deposits of copper or recycle some existing copper that's out there. But it's a pretty clever way to do all of this. Now, all of that data for those 130 years is 11 terabytes of data. If you said to a human team of people, go and analyse that and see which mines we should go back to, well, we'll come back in a few decades when we've managed to go through all that data. Obviously, that's the power of computing, the power of AI, to take all of that data, analyse that, and start to give some indications about which mines they should go and look at. Modern mining techniques might be better, copper's worth more, et cetera, et cetera. So it mm. sounds like a fascinating way to go back and look at some of those previously mined mine sites. Yeah, look, uh, it, it just fascinates me about all the copper that has been used uh, to this point and what is lying around in tips and in the back of garages and all that sort of stuff, there's got to be tons and tons and tons and thousands of tons mm. of copper that's not being used. So we could probably, we're going to have to recycle that stuff. Well, that'd be sure. one, one way to do it as well. But uh, yeah, look, uh, the, the, the need to, to mine more copper is um, is uh, crazy, yeah. And think about all the electrical cables that are used now. Yeah. Some of those are now aluminium because it was too hard to get copper or copper was too expensive. Mm. Aluminium doesn't conduct quite as well as copper, so you end up with a, a larger cross-section of aluminium cables compared to copper. But maybe it'll get to the stage where copper is so valuable that they start going back to some sites that have got large copper cables installed and swapping that out for aluminium. I'm I'm just spitballing here. I don't know whether this will happen, whether it would be viable, but maybe you'll need to start to transfer some of so that copper. So we need a material scientist go, to go and develop a better conductor than uh, than copper. That's right. Uh, material science. Like that. that is the future, Let's James. Do that. Someone told me that <laughs> is the future. <laughs> and that brings to close yet another sterling episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson which is just in the nick of time because it looks like we're running out of cassette tape. It'd be a shame to have to flip to side B just for the closing comments. And the battery on our recording device is down to 20%, so we better stop soon, James. <laughs> Good news. Okay. Well, thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. My pleasure. I'm off to go and point my doorbell straight at the sky and see if I can't make a quick million bucks. But uh, as you told me, I'm not in America. Maybe I can move to America just for the doorbell act- action there, get there. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. It's always a pleasure to put our little podcast together and we're grateful for the opportunity that you, the listeners, have allowed us. I'm your host, James Eddy, and together with Matthew, we're both looking forward to being back with you in a week's time with another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Until then, take care and we'll catch you later. 